Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Cork Golumbic, the Global Head of Financial Crime Compliance here at Goldman Sachs. I'm uh, delighted to welcome Dan Abrams. He's the founder and CEO of Abrams Media. Uh, he's the chief legal anchor for ABC News. Um, he's also the host of two hit TV shows on, on A&E, Live PD, and uh, Grace, Grace versus Abrams. He's also, in his spare time, he writes books. So he's also written this book, Lincoln's Last Trial, The Murder Case That Propelled Him to the Presidency. We're gonna talk about that and a lot more. So Dan, good to see you. Thank you for having me, this is great, yeah. I want to start with the beginning. Um, your father, Floyd Abrams, is a preeminent constitutional lawyer. Your, your sister, Ronnie, is, is a former federal prosecutor, currently a federal judge. Um, many might avoid following the family tradition, but you jumped right into it. What drew you to the law in the first place, and, and to what extent did your father influence that, that path? My dad, look, I think any time a parent does something that they love, um, you look at that and you say, that seems like a kind of a cool thing to do. Um, I didn't think that I wanted to practice law, um, but I think having a, a father, my dad you know, works at a big law firm and gets to do constitutional law, which is kind of a unique combination. I think that, um, that is definitely what led me to look at the law closely and say this is an area that I would definitely be interested in because my dad loved what he did. You graduated from law school in 1992. You soon landed a gig at, at an up-and-coming network um, that focused entirely on covering, covering trials, Core TV. Um, now, the news cycle has always been driven by uh, developments in criminal justice, or in the justice system more generally, uh, but Core TV took things to a whole new level. Looking back on that experience and, and the way things have evolved since then, um, how do you think the process of covering trials from gavel to gavel, gavel, to gavel has helped or hurt the public's perception of the criminal justice system? So I think on the whole, it helps. I think there have been cases that had they not been televised, there would have been riots in response because people got to see why the jury reached a verdict it did. Um, going back a little bit, uh, looking around the room before many of your times, the O.J. Simpson case did a great disservice to cameras in the courtroom. It was a huge setback. Um, and that was because there was a sense in that case, and they were right, that the lawyers were playing to the camera. Um, you really don't see that in almost any other case. Um, people forget that the camera's there. Um, not in the O.J. Simpson case. It was, it was different. And so, so I think that, you know, and I've actually started now a sort of new millennial version of court TV called Law and Crime, where we cover trials live. Um, and I think that it is incredibly instructive. I like to say sometimes that, you know, a lot of the people who cover politics sort of poo-poo covering high-profile cases. They say, oh, it's entertainment, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of capitalizing on people's misery, et cetera. And yet, my perspective is people who cover politics, and I mean what they're typically doing is not covering policy, but they're covering politics. And that's the who's up and who's down, who made the biggest gaffe of the day, and what's the impact. I think that's more dangerous and more insidious 
then at least from a legal, from a, covering a trial, you learn something about how the system works or doesn't work. You don't learn much from the gaffe of the day or how the polls are going up or down that day. I mean, look, I love watching it, but it really irks me when people who are doing that sort of look down on covering high-profile cases. Uh, because from my perspective, they're actually um, less damaging to our democracy than our coverage of politics. Do you think there's any place for uh, judges who, who ban cameras in their courtroom? Of course. I mean, look, they're going to be, t look, the cameras aren't allowed in any federal cases, period. I think that's unfortunate. I think it's ridiculous that cameras aren't allowed in the US, the United States Supreme Court. Um, I mean, the, the best arguments against a camera in the courtroom tend to be about witnesses, right, about intimidating witnesses. And look, and by the way, if it's ever an incident involving a child, no camera should be in the courtroom. If there's a, you know, if it's about abuse of a child or something and the child has to testify, you know, they're just, I don't think there should be a camera there. Um, but the US Supreme Court, there are no witnesses. It's just nine people who are supposed to be the most important jurists in the country arguing with, with the people who are supposed to be the finest lawyers in the country. And we're saying, well, we don't want a camera. The best argument I've heard from the Supreme Court justices about why there shouldn't be a camera is we don't want to be recognized on the street. Or we don't want, or we don't want, we don't want our words taken out of context. Well, you know what? Everyone else has to have this problem. The idea that the United States Supreme Court justices can't have to deal with that, to me, seems like a, a borderline frivolous argument. But it seems like one that is uh, nothing's going to change anytime soon on that one. After Court TV, you went on to NBC News. Um, then you went on to host a daily, a daily show at MSNBC, and you eventually ended up running the network for a period of time. You're now at ABC News covering complex cases and investigations. How do you distill a, a complex case or investigation for public consumption? Um, you know, after a while, you get a sense of what people want to know, meaning not what do lawyers want to know, not what do the legal papers say, but what are the questions I would be asked you know, at the airport? Or what are the questions that you know, random person would want to know about a particular case? And so I end up sort of producing my segments by saying, you know, here are, are the three points I think that you guys are going to want to hit. They don't necessarily always hit them, but most of the time they do because you know, it's, you know, do I think that, uh, you know, what are the chances of a, uh, what's, what's the defense likely going to be? Do you expect the defendant to take the stand? Or in a civil case, what's the strongest argument that the plaintiff has? What do you think the strongest argument the defense has? So it's about thinking in a different way, and it's not really a lawyer's way of thinking. Because lawyers, the nuances are really important. I've got to figure out how to shave out the nuance as much as possible and tell the story in as succinct a way as possible um, that isn't just sensationalistic, right? The reason I'm there is to offer some form of legal analysis as to either why it's outrageous or why it's not outrageous, but for every segment I do, I try and think of one like nugget that you know an average layperson might not have known. And it requires me you know, learning Wisconsin law and seeing what is the distinction between second degree murder and manslaughter? Why was it this charge? and sort of trying to offer up that one little nugget of kind of interesting information that says maybe this is some insight into why the prosecutor did what she did or why the, you know, the judge may rule this particular way, et cetera. 
One of those complex cases um, was Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court case that ultimately decided the, the 2000 presidential election. For those of you uh, uh, who were zygotes in 2000, this was a very big deal. Um, <laughs> um, you were famously standing on the courthouse steps with, with fellow reporter Pete Williams, um, analyzing the case in real time as it was decided. It was actually a, it was a very complicated case, a split opinion. And a lot of the legal analysts who were trying to do the same thing got it wrong. Mm. You were one of the few people who got it right. Um, how did you go about uh, dissecting that case as rapidly as you did in real time on live TV? And, and what do you think that uh, process, or how did that experience impact how other people cover Supreme Court? So I almost felt like the justices wrote that opinion in a way to mess with the media. Um, it, was, it wasn't even a super long opinion. It was just initially the, the ruling said at the end, remanded, right? So if you think it's remanded down to the lower court, you think it's still in play. Um, and so we were standing there and we got the opinion and you know, Tom Brokaw was in our ear saying, you know, kind of pushing us to say, you know, what does it mean? And you know, we're sitting there reading from a portion of it, but we were both sort of confused by it and as to what the actual impact of the ruling, this goes to your previous question, which is, that's, anyone, that's all anyone wanted to right. know. They didn't want to know the legal reasoning. They wanted to know what does this mean for, for the election. And the way we were able to get the answer was to read the dissent. Um, so when I literally read the entirety on, you know, on the court, I said we read the entire, and I still didn't know what the impact was after reading the, the, the opinion. And so the minute I got to the dissent, I was like, boom, okay, got it. It's over. Um, and, and I think that a lot of people didn't bother reading the dissent. Uh, they just read, they were looking for the, the key words that we often look for. You go right to the end of the opinion to read the last paragraph, right. which we all did, and it didn't tell you anything. So then you actually have to go back and read the opinion itself. And, and when I say read, we're skimming. I mean, you know, I'm not sitting there. It's like the minute I see them citing a, a, a legal opinion and what it means, you know, going right past that. I'm looking for tell me what the ruling is. And it was, it was the dissent uh, that, that uh, and look, the, the good news is that, and I think the lesson there was, um, because of the number of people who got it wrong, was you just gotta be uh, careful. Let's talk about a trial that you were not around to cover. Um, your latest book is about the 1859 murder trial of Peachy Quinn Harrison, who was a citizen of Springfield, Illinois who was represented at the time by a, a, a hotshot trial attorney and up and coming politician by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Um, how did you discover the case and, and what makes it so significant in, the terms of the, in terms of the trajectory of our 16th president? So my co-author, uh, David Fisher, uh, came to me and said, you know, there's a transcript out there. It's the only transcript that exists of any trial Lincoln's ever argued. And it was only discovered in 1989. And it's a really compelling murder trial. And really, no one's written about it. And I'm like, come on. A Lincoln case that no one's written about, where it's a compelling murder trial, and we have the whole transcript, the only transcript that exists? I literally did not believe it. I was like, this just can't be the case. Um, and literally, I'm on the, we're talking on the phone, and I'm sitting there Googling. And I'm like, OK, well. And then I find this one ABA article, American Bar Association, Reviewing it, there's one New York Times article from 1989 talking about the discovery of the transcript. And it was true. No one had done anything on this story. So we started digging into the story. 
And it got more interesting um, when we started learning about who the stenographer was, meaning because they didn't do transcripts uh, back then. And so why was this case transcribed? Well, this was the same guy who had transcribed the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, for Lincoln. In fact, there was one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates Lincoln refused to start until Robert Hitt was sitting in his spot right in front of Lincoln where he was supposed to be sitting to transcribe it because Lincoln recognized how important the transcription would be um, for people to read about the debate. Um, remember, at that time, Lincoln was much less famous than Douglas. So Lincoln was the up-and-comer. Um, and ultimately, he lost that, that election uh, against Douglas. But um, so that was the, that's how it started in terms of us getting into it. And, uh, and we just went from there. And the trial, as I say in the introduction, would have been, in high, would have been a high-profile case, I think, you know, in, in these days. It had all the makings. There's a big celebrity witness who testifies in the case. You have a well-known lawyer. You have a, basically, it's a self-defense case. Basically, one, these two friends, former neighbors, are talking trash to one another over something that had happened. And uh, the one bigger guy who ends up being the victim says he's going to stomp him, he's going to whip him. The smaller guy who becomes the defendant says, you know, if he tries to hurt me, I'll kill him, which became one of the most important statements against him. So he borrows a knife from a friend of his and just carries it around with him. And lo and behold, uh, within two weeks, this guy and his brother are both, you know, they see him at this drugstore, which is effectively like a, a diner almost, and go after him. And the fight starts. He pulls out the knife, stabs him, stabs the brother. The brother ends up testifying against him. It was a really compelling uh, trial with Lincoln for the defense. What, what did you learn about Lincoln as a lawyer and as a leader from researching and writing the book? I think the lawyer and leader are two, two really distinct questions. So first, as, as a lawyer, this was the end of his career, right? At this point, he has been a, a really successful attorney, um, one of the best known in the, in the West. And he had kind of honed his craft. He was known as the guy who could talk to a jury. Um, he wasn't uh, a, the, a big legal statutes guy. He was the person you brought in to try and communicate uh, with, with the jury. But just as important from the transcript we see, he learned what not to ask, meaning there were points where he could have kept going with a witness, and he stopped. And you know, part of the book, what we're doing is we do, um, you know, we try and uh, we, we recreate or presume what Hit would have been thinking at certain times to offer more context to the trial. And at points, we talk about how Hit is noticing that Lincoln isn't asking the follow-up question there, um, because it is clear that he's decided he's got what he needs. He doesn't want to uh, do too much. One of the, the most striking things to me in the book, as Lincoln as the lawyer, was watching him get uh, how angry he got at one point uh, when a legal, key legal ruling went against him. And people who were there said they've never seen Lincoln like this. They've never seen him as angry as he got when this ruling went against him. Um, and we have all the quotes, uh, the real quotes, from the people who, were, who watched him at that time. And the reason I distinguish that from Lincoln the leader is because I think that Lincoln the leader um, didn't have much leadership experience when he started. And it was just the opposite of his legal career, meaning I think he left his legal career with great confidence as a lawyer, and he started his presidency with great insecurity as a president. 
Um, you know, as, as, a, as a former prosecutor, one of the things that struck me most about the book, uh, or one of the things I found most interesting, was the fact that the criminal trial process more than 150 years ago was remarkably similar to the process that's in place today. Now, there have been huge advantage, advances in, in evidentiary science, DNA yeah. evidence and the like, but the process, the role of the judge, the role of the jury, opening statements, closing statements, rebuttals, that was remar remarkably the same. How do you account for that, given all that's, that's, that's changed in society in the intervening 150 yeah. plus years? Um, the biggest change is there are no more spittoons in, yes. in, in, uh, in Which courtrooms. I found to be a huge yeah, yeah. Li liability when I was a prosecutor. Exactly. Um, so um, look, I think it's one of the great things about law. And people talk about, I mean, more broadly, about our Constitution, right? That it's kind of a living document, but that we still use it every day in determining uh, rights, et cetera. And I think the legal system is the same, which is back then, the amazing thing about being a lawyer in the 1840s and 1850s was you were creating law. Uh, precedents were being set by the lawyers. Um, they didn't have a lot of areas to go back on. So it was an exciting time to be an attorney, but those precedents have in many cases, and, and particularly in the criminal law, remained. So the law of self-defense, as it exist back, existed back then, was almost identical uh, to what the law of self-defense is in most states in, a, in America today. So in addition to everything else you, you, you've done and are doing, um, you're the host of a hit uh, TV show on A&E called Live PD, which is, and I hope you'll forgive this characterization, but a, a modern-day version of Cops. I guess the two biggest differences are this is real-time live TV where you're following cop, cops on the beat in many different parts of the, of the country. And I guess the second biggest difference is that there are fewer people who are arrested without their shirts on. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a bunch, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the show has an enormous fan base. Yeah. Um, and tell, tell us about the show and why you think that it seems, to, it seems to trend every time it airs on the weekends on Twitter. So, you know, this has been like the breakout hit in cable, uh, period. Um, it's the, you know, the highest rated show on you know, we double the news show's ratings in terms of the key demo. And, um, and that's because the audience uh, isn't just watching a TV show. They are immersed in the experiences that are occurring. So it's part documentary um, in the sense that, you know, we literally have cameras with the officers. And, you know, I think that this is a time when people are particularly interested in what officers do. And as you point out, cops is like greatest hits, right? It's just like, oh, look at these crazy moments that happen with police officers. Like, some of live PD is boring. Um, some of it is a traffic stop. Um, but it's also what police officers do every day. So it gives you a much better sense of what being an officer uh, means. And like, and even the, the kind of the, the little things, and you know, we saw the other day, for example, you know, and it's happened many times before, someone urinates in the police car, a suspect. Who do you think has to clean it up? The officers. You know, it's like, you don't even think about that, right? You don't even think about, like, the, the little things that they have to deal with just in day-to-day -day being a police officer. And look, but it also reflects some of the larger societal questions about the role of police, um, the role of race, it comes up during the show. 
Um, and I think that that's important. I think, I, again, it's sort of along the lines of the same reason that I advocate cameras in courtrooms, is I think it is good to be able to show. It's, I, think it's, I think that body cams are a really important thing. You can talk about the logistics and you know, how they're being executed and when they're being turned on and not on. Fair discussions to have. But on the whole, I think it's a really good thing for police to have body cams. And I think that what we're showing is an important lens on policing in America. Dan, thank you for much. Yeah, so much thank for you for us. having me. This is great. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on June 11th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.